bless you. Thank you, Ern. Good morning, everybody. It's nice to be here with you. Um, as Aaron said, I'm newly retired. I think retirement is more like just putting on new tires and starting to do, you know, changing from summer or tires to winter tires, but winter to summer maybe when it's retirement. Um, often when people are preparing messages, they kind of get waylaid on the way, uh, going in one direction when they start, and like, like Doug was talking about last week, and, um, Anybody who, who speaks will probably have had the same experiences that you end up in a different place than you thought you were going. Um, and uh, that kind of happened to me. I thought I was going to talk on one subject, which I had talked on before, sort of like, you know, bring one of those out. And uh, I ended up being um, sort of heading off in a totally different direction. Um, and uh, this is brand new to me, too. <coughs> so... Should be fun. Uh, no high-powered stuff today, no PowerPoints. This is sort of like a conversation because I, as you'll see when I get to the end of this, it's not finished. Um, not finished because I don't have all the answers for what I'm talking about. I'm just being honest about it. Um, talking about somebody who's very, very familiar to most of us that read the Bible. Well, anybody who reads the Bible would know about this guy. So if you're kind of new to the Bible, maybe you don't know all the stories about him, but King David, uh, King David of Israel, the greatest king of uh, ancient Israel. Um, and where this started from was a practice that I've had from time to time in my um, devotional reading, uh, reading the book of Psalms. And um, I was reminded of that this week and looked at the psalm that I would be reading today in that practice, uh, Psalm 17. Uh, usually, if I'm doing this, this devotional practice, and you might want to try this sometime if you're thinking about, like, how... What kind of, this is something that I picked up years ago and kind of go back to as a fallback. Reading through the book of Psalms, and uh, there are 150 psalms, so you can do it whatever you would like. You can read through it twice in a year at that rate or, and, you know, take a break in between. Uh, if, if I was doing it intensively, what I would do is read through it in a month, which means that if there are 30 days in a month, I would read five psalms a day. Um, and for me, that would be the multiples of whatever day that I'm on and during the month. So this is the 17th. And so I would start at Psalm 17 and then go like 30, uh, you know, add 30 to that, so 47, etc., etc. That's one way of doing it. But Psalm 17, which is where I got waylaid, um, was kind of like I'd read this how many times and not really seen it for what it is. So I'll read it. Hear, O Lord, my righteous plea, listen to my cry, give ear to my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. May my vindication come from you, and may your eyes see what is right. Though you probe my heart and examine me at night, though you test me, you will find nothing. I've resolved that my mouth will not sin. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept myself from the ways of the violent. My steps have held to your paths, and my feet have not slipped. I call on you, O God, for you will answer me. Give ear to me and hear my prayer. 
Show the wonder of your great love. You have saved by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye and hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who assail me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. They close up their callous hearts and their mouths speak with arrogance. They've tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a great lion crouching in cover. Rise up, O Lord, confront them, bring them down. Rescue me from the wicked by your sword. O Lord, by your hand, save me from such men, from men of this world whose reward is in this life. You still the hunger of those you cherish. Their sons have plenty, and they store up wealth for their children. I, in righteousness, will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Now, what struck me about this is that this is so King David. This is just like a summary of King David in, a, in one shot. Um, and some of us, I do anyway, uh, have a bit of a hard time with some of the way that David expresses things. Uh, they're not the way we might want to choose, like praying for the destruction of our enemies um, and that kind of thing. That's kind of the, an Old Testament thing, right? Not that I want to sort of like there's, there's, you know, God is in the Old Testament. I'm not saying anything like that, that he's not, okay? I'm just saying that we are taught, and we were taught by Jesus to pray for our enemies. Um, and David here, though, is not saying that he will do the destroying. He's calling on God. Rescue me from the wicked by your sword. He's going to let God do it. Which is um, a bit of a contradiction in David's life, when you look at his life. So, the title I, I put on this is related to um, the story of how David was called to be king. You, maybe you guys remember that story. When Samuel was told by uh, the Lord that Saul had blown it for the last time and he was no longer worthy to be called king of Israel, you might remember that story. He had disobeyed God several times, not doing things quite the way that God had told him to do through the prophet Samuel. I won't go back through the details of that. It was kind of like God told Samuel, that's it. Okay, you're going to go and find another man to be king. And he sent him to, remember where that was? Where did he send him? A little wee place that is famous for mostly for other reasons in history. At Bethlehem. He sent him to Bethlehem, which in those days was hardly anything more than a hamlet. And he sent him there, and he told him specifically, go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. And then I'll show you who it is. So Samuel gets there, and he, you know, Jesse's freaking out when he gets there. Remember the details there. Jesse's having a freak out because Samuel showing up at his house 
um, things are not, things are pretty tense. And he's wondering, this is real trouble, okay? Here we got the prophet showing up at my house. He's not on good terms with the king. The king's going to get mad at me if I get too hospitable. And so he kind of comes out to meet Samuel and kind of says, like, what's up? And Samuel says, well, just, you know, invite me home and give me dinner sort of thing. And the, just tell him, if Saul comes along, just tell him that I came for a visit because you're going to hold a sacrifice. And so there was a kind of like a family sacrifice thing that he was using as his reason for being there. And the story goes along. And at the family dinner, of course, all the sons are there. And, and Jesse's got a whole pile of sons, right? Real good-looking dudes, big guys, full-grown warriors. And the first one comes in, Eliab, the, whole, the oldest, and like he looks like the man, you know, he's, he's tall, he's strong, he's, he's, you know, looks like a perfect candidate. And God says to Samuel, not him. And he goes down the line, not him, not him, not him, not him. Six of them down the line, and, he can, and, and the Holy Spirit just tells him, no, not him. Not any of those guys. And so, of course, Samuel's kind of sitting there scratching his head, right? Well, you told me to come here, Lord. What's this? And then he turns to Jesse and he says, hey, do you have any more sons? And he says, well, there is one. But he's just a really young guy and he's out in the fields looking after the sheep. And, of course, Samuel says, call him in. So they send for him. He has to get cleaned up. He smells like a sheep pen. And, uh, you know, finally comes in. And as soon as he comes in the door, the Holy Spirit says, that's him. And he anoints him. This is a bit of a, again, he anoints him, pours the, 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 the anointing oil on him, and he anoints him and, and prophesies over him that he's been called to be the next king of Israel. Can you imagine how his brothers felt about that? What was up? I mean, all of these guys, they're senior, seniority, right? Hey, if anybody's going to be called, of course, there is a king there, right? So, and Jesse says, what? What about all these other guys? Look at them. And that's when Samuel makes this, uh, it makes his famous statement, okay? He says, the you look on the outside. The Lord looks on the inside. And he's looking for a man after his own heart. So, what I'm talking about, I've given a title of the mystery of a man after God's own heart. Um, because David, to me, is a bit of a mystery. Okay? He's a bit of a mystery. He's one of our favorite Sunday school characters, right? I mean, can you name me one story with David in it that is always told in Sunday school? David and Goliath, exactly. David and Goliath. Everybody, even people that don't believe the Bible know that story. Even people that hardly even know the Bible exists know that story because it's been a synonym in our language. It's a metaphor in our language for overcoming the impossible. Winning against... Huge odds, and nobody expects you to win, right? It's part of the culture. It's, still, it's a part of the biblical culture that used to be so, you know, strong in, our, in Canada and in Western world uh, that's still out there. 
And maybe you've got your own David and Goliath story in your own life. Or maybe you're facing one right now. You're looking at something that looks so huge. You have no idea how you're going to get through that or how you're going to overcome it. Or maybe there's just, you know, somebody really, really difficult that you're going to have to deal with, right? So again, without retelling the David and Goliath story, we know how it turned out and we know what it looked like before it began when David went down there to face that impossible thing. None of those, none of his older brothers who were already, he had three brothers, three of those great big guys that looked so impressive were in the army. And they were called out to do battle against the Philistines who had come and invaded Israel again. And um, none of them would take him on. In fact, not even King Saul, who was the tallest man in Israel, would take this guy on. Because it looked like an impossible task. So maybe you've got a story where something like that has happened in your life. If you don't, you probably will at some point, right? Uh, one of my favorite David and Goliath stories is Cinderella Man. Okay, it's just a bit of a sort of one of those things in the modern culture that people look at. It, it's very attractive, right? The great winner, and that's how David's rise to, shall we say, fame and power and everything else that comes out of it began. Right? It began there. So, what's the mystery here? Um, well, David began really strong. If you think about it, he began super strong. This amazing thing happened, and it catapulted him immediately into the front lines, literally, and sort of metaphorically, of Israel's elite. Like, I mean, how else? Where else would you end up, right? You kill the biggest and strongest person in the world at the time, right? In one-on-one -on -one combat, wow, right? You become the champion. Um, but it doesn't end there, right? For a while, things go on great for David. He becomes, you know, becomes a leader of the armies, and then uh, eventually Saul gets jealous of him because he's become so popular, and David has to flee because Saul is planning to kill him. Up until that point, you know, David has been entirely in line with what God has wanted. Can you name me another thing that happened to David later that wasn't so good? Yeah. David won his kingdom. He won his kingdom, became king. And at first, his desire was to do everything according to the Lord's will. And he was very diligent about that in worship. And, you know, he was doing things as best he knew according to the to the laws of Moses, etc. They made a few mistakes because they didn't understand things properly. Uh, remember when they were bringing the, the, the tabernacle into, or not the tabernacle, but the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant into uh, the new tabernacle that David had built and, you know, had been threatened to f fall over and then somebody died trying to hold it up, etc. And so they didn't understand some of the laws and how to interpret them properly. And then they researched it and they got it right. And that was David's heart, to do things the way God had said to do them. Right? But a funny thing happens to people once they get into power. Right? David became 
the most powerful man in Israel and the richest man in Israel, right? When you win a lot of wars as a king, you get a lot of stuff. And David began to collect things, including wives. Now, from our, you know, from our perspective, you know, we, well, who knows where we're going in our time. And, I mean, this might be one of the things, hopefully not, but one of the things might be coming down the pike at some point in our lifetime, even in my lifetime, as one of the older people here. Uh, there's been talk about polygamy and, you know, the, you know. And David began to collect wives. It was the fashion of kings in those days, not only to collect wealth and palaces and chariots and horses as symbols of their power, but wives, right? It was one of the ways they stated their, their, their position and their prestige. In the law of Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, there are rules about what's going, what an Israelite king was supposed to be like, and they weren't supposed to do this stuff. Now, did David know that? Well, he, he knew it. He knew it. He's a man who knew the law, especially after he began to look at it seriously so that he wouldn't make mistakes. So when he began to do this stuff, I have to think... And again, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of reading into it that he knew that maybe he shouldn't be doing some of the stuff he was doing. So the mystery of it is when we look at David in his earlier years, he had this zeal for the Lord. There's, a, there's an expression in one of, the, uh, one of the Psalms where it says, zeal for the Lord's house consumes me. And David had great zeal for the Lord's house and for the abiding presence of God. He had great zeal for that. One of the things we owe to David is the book of Psalms. Half of the book of Psalms has been traditionally attributed to David. There are 150 Psalms. He is thought to have written 75 of them. Okay? Now, is there a better worship repertoire in the world than the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms was written as worship songs. That's what they were written for. They were written for the worship in the temple. And for many years in the early church, it was the only repertoire they had. That It was the worship repertoire. And this is David's heart poured out for us to see. And it says there that, you know, that, that, that he was a man after God's own heart, and we have the testimony of it right here. He was totally, as far as, you know, totally given over to following the Lord's heart. But as he gets older, then we begin to see this paradox creeping in, right? He goes through some pretty difficult experiences. Friends betray him. He loses a whole lot of stuff. He loses people. He becomes engaged in the political process and the power struggle. And that begins to consume him. Right? And some of the results are not so pretty. 
vengeance for wrongs done. Now, David did better than a lot of people of his day. He was given, when, when he was on the run from King Saul, he had two, two golden opportunities to kill Saul. Or he could have just walked up behind him and killed him. Twice. And he refused to do it. And his right-hand man, Joab, said, what's the matter with you, right? He's right there at your mercy. Kill him. And David's response was, again, showing where his, the struggle that goes on in him, right? He wants to be a man after God's heart. And he says, I cannot do that because he's the anointed of the Lord. Now, you might say, maybe he had a mixed motive because he was anointed of the Lord too, right? So if he can kill somebody who's anointed of the Lord, that might say to somebody else, they could do that too, right? But I think his heart was more pure than that in that question. I mean, he, does, he, he, I think, said, this is God's doing, and it's up to God to deal with King Saul in his time and in his way. And David got that so right. It's an example for some, sometimes for us, too. Like, I would so like to take that person and wring their neck, you know? Get even with them for something. And God says, no. Vengeance is mine. Leave it to me. Maybe you've had that experience. So we know what happened to David. He fell into some really serious sin. And the culminating moment of that was Bathsheba. But of course, there's a, there's a second sin involved, not only in the adultery with Bathsheba, but what was the other part of the sin? There was murder. That's right. So this is part of the paradox. I mean, this is what I mean, the paradox of a man after God's own heart. Now, I haven't committed either of those sins. And I imagine that, you know, I don't think there are any murderers in this room. But, you know, uh, now, it doesn't mean you haven't thought a thought here and there. And, you know, oh, you know. But at any rate, those are two of the biggies, right? You say, how could somebody who does that still be after a man after God's heart? Really? Murder and adultery, I mean, God denounces those things, right? So part of the mystery to me is that how did, how did David remain a man after God's heart when he did that kind of thing? Now, those were not spur-of-the-moment things, were they? When you stop and think of it. David committed the sin himself, and of course Bathsheba had a part to play in that. I mean, she could have said no. She was a married woman. She could have told the, the people, we're not told who they were, that David sent to fetch her. Well, no, I can't do that. I mean, if she was being fetched by the king, I don't think there was any doubt in her mind about what that was for. Her husband's away, and the king calls her. They had met before, I'm sure. Although maybe from the distance, David couldn't tell who that was. Okay, I mean, Uriah was one of his right-hand guys sort of thing. Anyway, whatever. David didn't just bring himself down. He brought down other people with him. Her, the people that got sent were accomplices in this. 
maybe they said, well, I can't say no to the king to do this. And then in the murder <clears throat> of Uriah, that was carefully planned and plotted. Who was the chief accomplice on that one? Joab, David's army commander, also his first cousin, was told to do this deed, to set it up, okay? So the question I have is, when he gets to this point, is he still a man after God's heart? Would he have repented? We know that he did repent, but when did he repent? Only when Nathan had a revelation from God directly about what he had done, because, I mean, who knew? Joab knew, Bathsheba knew, and a few servants who wanted to keep their mouths shut if they knew what was good for them, they knew, right? Other than that, who knew? And that's what I've, I suppose David was kind of secure in this knowledge. Well, nobody really knows what I did. And God told Nathan directly, and that's when David was confronted by Nathan. Remember, David, uh, Nathan did that very delicately. He didn't just go in and say, you're an adulterer and a murderer, right? He went in very delicately and told him a story. And he still, had a, he still knew that David had a sense of justice. He hadn't gone that far. He still had a sense of justice that he had gotten from the Holy Spirit over the, you know, through, through reading the law, etc. And he knew what right and wrong was. It wasn't a question of that. But in his own case, he was denying. He was in denial. So Nathan went and told him that story about, you know, the rich guy who had a whole herds of sheep and the poor guy who had one sheep, right? Now, herds of sheep, at this point, David had multiple wives. I mean, he wasn't short of beautiful women if that's what he needed. Right? Sorry, ladies. It was the style of the day. Okay. Um, and he didn't need one more. This was purely something that's not love. Right? So... That's when David repented, when he was confronted and said, God knows what you did, and he told me. He went, remember at the end of the story, he says, David, David says, well, get that man before me and I'll have him punished. And then Nathan says, you're the man. Okay. Wow. What I'm wondering what happened to David is that did he return to that sense of intimacy that he had had with God over all those years before, did he get back there? Well, I think Psalm 53 has a clue. Okay? Psalm 53, I'll read a bit of that. Part of it that's kind of crucial here. Not 53, I'm sorry. Uh... Okay, I got the wrong song. Oh, no. Anyway, 51, that's the one. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I won't read the whole thing, it's long. 
and this is that, the, 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 the subtitle for this, and this is, you know, the, in the Hebrew there are subtitles, and the subtitle says, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Okay. So was his repentance sincere? I think it was totally sincere. But he didn't get there until he was confronted. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. And then he reflects, he says, Surely I've been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts, and you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all in my iniquity. Create, and here's, the, here's part of the psalm that has been turned into worship song, a modern worship song. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, he didn't just repent in public. Nathan came to him in private. I mean, in pri he didn't repent in private. He repented in public. Nathan came to him in private. But David's repentance, and I guess he felt that he had to publicly repent to set an example, maybe, for what he had done. Maybe the gossip train was out there wheeling away, right? And he had to come clean on the whole thing in more than one way. But he's reflecting. He's reflecting. Can he undo what he did? No way. Especially, you know, like he just made the whole thing public. He just came right out and said, this is what I did. It was horrible. It was wrong. I repent. God cleanse me. Right? One of the results of that was that Nathan told him that God accepted his repentance and that he would not re revoke the promise he had made to David before that in the future one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And Nathan told him, God is not revoking that, okay? He stands by that because he promised that to you. But from this day forward, you will, you will have trouble in your house until the day you die. These are the consequences, right? So, there's several things here, right? How could he have gone so far? Why did it take so much to get him back, right? And then, the consequences. The consequences of, of things that we do are going to be with us even when we repent, if they've been bad stuff, right? Mistakes we make don't just go away. David wishes they will, right? 
He says, blot out all my iniquity. God is willing to, he's going to cleanse him. You are cleansed, you are forgiven. But you can't undo what's happened here, right? So, I think that he still was, somehow or other, not, God did not remove that from him, of being after God's own heart. Get the sense a little bit, as time goes on, that he, he became a, broke, uh, a, a fairly broken man. The stuff that happened in his family was really, really heavy stuff. Rebellion. One of his sons tried to overthrow him, right? Then uh, fighting among his own sons, like among them. Rivalries among his sons. Something that, and one of those rivalries that uh, came out of, well, there's some younger people here, we won't say what, episode. Um, came out of a, a feud between two of his sons about what had happened to one of his daughters, right? Anyway. David, zealous for God, had to watch that happening in his family. And he knew that that came out of what he had done. Most of us don't have sins as spectacular as David's. But we still end up having to deal with our own stuff, right? If this had happened today, this would be like really juicy stuff for the, you know, for the tabloids and the, the internet, you know, networks of, you know, like we're fascinated by the, the you walk, go into the stores and you see on the shelves there, you know, all these glitzy magazines with stories about the celebrities and everything. And we're kind of fascinated with that, right? Um, All it really shows us is that things haven't changed all that much, right? People are still people. Let's sort of bring this home and close it up. We all have a calling to be people after God's heart. That's God's desire for us. It's for you and for me. The key issue is our heart. It's not what we look like on the outside and the way we perform in front of people. It's not the reputation we build up. It's not success and all the stuff that sort of attracts people and said, you know, what a wonderful person. As Samuel said, God looks on the inside and he is looking for a heart that will be zealous for him and follow him. But at the same time, the comfort I get out of King David's story, as, as sad as it is at times, and some of it is really tragic, when, he, when he's dying, he knows that things are not, they're going to be hard after he's gone, especially for his family. Okay, and he's, he's not guilt-free when it comes to what's, what he can sort of foresee is going to happen. Okay, 
I think that's why he's a bit of a broken man at the end. But he still had a comfort and a knowledge. And that goes back to Psalm 17 that I was saying here. That despite all of that, God had saved him. That his reward wasn't for the things that he had, you know, all that power and wealth and everything else that he had done. His reward was coming from his zeal and his relationship that he still had with the Lord. When we blow it, we still have God's heart for us. And what God is willing to do is to take us and bring us back into his heart. So restore the relationship to cleanse us the way he cleansed David and to say, you can be clean no matter what it is. I mean, have you done anything that's worse than adultery and murder or whatever? Whatever it is that I've done, if God can forgive that, he can forgive what he did with David, what David did, he can forgive me for anything that I've done. And we can all be restored to that heart. Now, we may have to deal with some stuff. The ultimate story of dealing with the stuff, of course, is Jesus. Jesus is the one who's dealt with the stuff, right? That's why we get to be clean. That's why we know we can return to God's heart. Because Jesus, if you want to put it this way, died of a broken heart. God's broken heart for us. God's broken heart for the world. Jesus died for that. And when he did that, and he, you know, he said during his ministry on earth, come to me all you who, are lab who, are, who labor under a heavy burden and I will give you rest. What he was saying was, give me your burden, your broken heart. Give me the sin that you've carried. Give me that. And I will make you clean. And I'll make you one with my Father's heart. If you're going through some stuff, it's not a sign that God doesn't love you. Right? We all go through stuff. Um... Philip Yancey some years ago, well, probably 20 years ago or so, wrote a book called Where's God When It Hurts, right? Some of you may have read that book. But I want to rephrase this question. Sorry, Philip, I'm paraphrasing your question. To another question, not just as where is God when it hurts, but what is God's heart for me when it hurts? And then I'm going to add something. What does it show me about mine? Because if part of what goes on there is, you know, when we're willing to receive, you know, the offer from God, 
he begins to show us the things that are broken in my heart that I need to turn over to him. So I don't have all the answers, but I do know that God's heart is for me. God's heart is for you. No matter what it is, God's heart is for you. Wherever you are, his heart is for you. You cannot get away from his love. The love of God is agape. It's self-sacrificing, complete, perfect. It can't be broken. His promise to you is that you will have it always. The only way you can't have it is if you refuse to receive it. And it's okay to have questions. It's perfectly okay to have questions. So, I'm going to pray. And, um, I mean, if part of what I'm praying applies to you, then just, just receive it. Thank you, Lord. Oh, God, thank you. Even thank you for the missteps of King David because um, even though he was certainly not a perfect man, he was a man after your heart and he blew it, but he came back. And Lord, the way you received him back is the way you take us back too. Lord, that we, when we've blown it, even if we've blown it now, we've just sort of run away from it and denied it. Lord, oh Lord, show us so that we can turn back to you. Your heart is extended to us. Your hand is reaching out to receive us. Lord, help us to receive it. Bring us to that place where our hearts turn to you totally and they give to you the things that you already took when you went to the cross. Cleanse us, Lord. Make us new. That we can uh, go from this point as people who are zealous to know your heart and to live in unity with your heart. I ask it in Jesus' name.